Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleidocast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute, and Inquisitor James Earl King II, as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Previously on the Kaleidocast... I... Is this Harriet M. Welch, the investigator? What can I do for you, Mr. Hornbaum? I'm a painter, and someone or something is changing my work. I want to be followed. I want you to track me like a suspect in a crime. I'm rich. Uh, Richard DeBrunt. What's the deal? Why are you following him? I'm not really at liberty to discuss it, and I should go. Here is my card. Please get in touch if you think of anything useful. It's widely asserted that Ernst's source material for these pictures, these hundreds of collages, was woodcut illustrations from Victorian pulp magazines and children's books, right? The presumed sources don't exist. The images originate with Ernst. Interloper, meddler, hypocrite, Handbam must be left alone. To continue, is punishable by excommunication from all you hold most dear. And now, the conclusion. Seven. Harriet woke up angry. Hornbaum was playing with her and she resented it. Her idiotic dream was galling confirmation of her own susceptibility to his trick, his stunt, whatever it was he'd pulled off in the studio. In the bright light of morning, it was clear to her that it had been nothing more than a clever special effect. The question was, what was the odd little man up to? What motive did he have for involving her in his games? She'd find out, that was for sure. She dressed and went out, grabbed coffee and a donut on Greenwich Avenue, and got to Barrow just in time to see Hornbaum hurrying down the stoop, his collar up around his neck, his gaze darting nervously up and down the street, yet seeming not to take her in. She hesitated as he scurried up the street toward Seventh. Her urge to confront him vied with her curiosity, and lost, she trailed a safe distance behind. Half an hour later, she followed him into the anxious furniture exhibition and watched as he planted himself in front of bird camera. After fifteen or twenty minutes, she approached him, partly to set a boredom with the alternative. Mr. Hornbaum, she said, stepping up behind him. We need to talk. He turned and stared at her with a look of horror, and then darted away. Wait a minute, she said, and took off after him, ignoring the stares she drew. Hornbaum made straight for the nearest guard, 
A stout black man stuffed like a sleeping bag into his gray polyester uniform. Help me, please. This woman has been following me. Hmm? The guard roused slowly to Hornbaum's frantic request. She bothering you? I want you to arrest her, Hornbaum said as Harriet arrived. Her? I ain't no cop, said the guard. What is this, Hornbaum? Don't pretend. Please, sir, help. Hornbaum cowered from Harriet. She won't leave me alone. They were beginning to draw attention away from the nearest object, sugar cubes trapped in a wicker cage. This is ridiculous, said Harriet. He hired me. I've, I've never seen her before, said Hornbaum. But as you see, she's quite insistent. Please. Another guard, a middle-aged woman, stepped through the circle forming around them. Let's get her out of here, she said. Harriet became suddenly conscious of the fact that Hornbaum, in his suit and gloves and carefully combed white hair, looked every bit the helpless uptown victim, while she, in her torn sweatshirt and gray Adidas, probably appeared thuggish. The black guard put his hand on her arm. We can hold her here for the police if you want, he said to Hornbaum. But you're going to have to stick around and make a statement. The museum don't have no charges to press. We just kick her out. I'll press charges myself, said Harriet. I've got Hornbaum's personal check in my desk. I'm working for him. Keep it down, said the first guard. This is a museum. You can argue it out when the cops get here. Okay, people, said the female guard. Back to the show. The two of them steered Harriet back through the crowd toward the lobby. Hornbaum scurried after. They pushed through a door, marked Personnel, to a tiny room where a third guard, an overweight man with a pink bloated nose, sat at a desk with a coffee and a newspaper. We gotta sit on these two, said the first guard, jerking a thumb at Hornbaum. He wants to press charges. He pushed Harriet toward a chair against the wall. What a day, groaned the guard with a pink nose. The female guard pushed the door closed, but just as quickly it pushed back open, and Richard de Bronck popped in. Excuse me, he said. Personnel only, said the guard with the pink nose. Richard, started Harriet. I think I can clear this up for you if you give me a minute, said Richard, grabbing the hand of the guard at the desk and shaking it vigorously. Dr. de Bronck, I'm in charge of the outpatient clinic at St. Belfort's. Should I get a cop now, said the female guard. There's no need for a cop, said de Bronck. This is a misunderstanding between two patients, two very unstable patients. I assigned Harriet and Jonathan a museum trip today, and it's 100% my fault if they created some kind of problem. Harriet groaned. She could tolerate de Bronck rescuing her, barely. But this performance was getting a little campy. Hornbaum began to turn red. I see no reason why this preposterous... De Bronck put a warning finger in the air. Now, Jonathan, why don't you run along and we'll see you back at the residence. You shouldn't let Harriet provoke you so easily. Here, this nice lady will help you find your way downstairs. He stage-winked at the female guard and nodded broadly at Hornbaum, who could only bluster incoherently. The pink-nosed guard opened a drawer of the desk and took out a bottle of Pepto-Bismol and poured it into his coffee. There you go, that's good, said de Bronck, nudging the female guard and Hornbaum back through the door. What about her? said the first guard, looking at Harriet. Harriet stuck her tongue out at him. She can be a little tricky, said de Bronck. I probably ought to re-hypnotize her. Jesus Christ, 
said the guard with the pink nose. Okay, never mind. Do you need me to sign something? We got an incident form. Let me save you the paperwork. Harriet, you sit still. Let me fill that out for you, sir. My apologies for all this trouble. He went to the desk and took the form away from the guard. This pen doesn't work. He dug in the drawer, knocked the newspaper from the desktop, and mixed a sequence of profuse apologies to the guards with stern admonitions to Harriet not to move a muscle. Remember what happened the day you got loose at the zoo? The guards rolled their eyes. Finally, he signed, the bottom of the form with a flourish. R. de Bronc, Ph.D. That's piled higher and deeper. <laughs> Came out from behind the desk and took Harriet's arm. And out they went. Harriet tugged free as they left the museum and rushed to the street corner looking for Hornbaum. The river of cabs attested to his likely easy escape. De Bronc caught up with her a minute later. I am going to kill him, she said. First I'm going to make him tell me what the hell he's up to, and then I'm going to kill him. Did you see? De Bronc nodded. I'd just gotten there when you went up to him. I caught the whole thing, he said. They walked back to the portico of the museum. He's trying to make me a pawn in some game he's running, she said. But he picked wrong. I'm going to nail him. De Bronc nodded. If there's anything to nail, he seems kind of out of it to me. An act, trust me. He smiled. I do, actually. What's that supposed to mean? Hey, speaking of acts, what was all that crap? Ulterior motives. You're quite the little bullshit artist, Dr. DeBronc. Thank you. Don't take it as a compliment until you stop bullshitting, please. What ulterior motives? Are you flirting with me? Well, he said, grinning lasciviously. There's a palm set of museum keys in my pocket. He jingled his loot. But that doesn't mean I'm not glad to see you. Eight. You have to help me, Harriet. I can't do it alone. She and DeBronk were in her office talking over sandwiches and coffee when the door buzzer sounded. Yes, she said into the intercom. Miss Felch, it's Jonathan Hornbaum. May I speak with you? She looked at DeBronk, who shrugged. Just a minute, she said and clicked the intercom off. You can't be here, she said. After what happened, it can't turn out that I know you. It guts my case against him if he recognizes you from the museum and thinks we're collaborating. So hide me. Hide you? Is this what it's always like to hang out with you, DeBronk? Hey, you're the one with a comic book career. Shut up and get in the closet. She buzzed Hornbaum in and slid the sandwiches into her desk drawer. He opened the door to her office and she said, Sit down. He sat meekly. It's probably too soon, I realize. But I couldn't help wondering if you had some sort of update, any information at all regarding the past two days. I might. Oh, good. I've been... There's been more changes in the paintings. I'm sure. Phil, oh dear. Do I need to bring our account up to date? He pulled out his checkbook and pen. That's not exactly the problem, Mr. Hornbaum. Before you fill that out, I need to ask you a couple of questions. Of course. 
I'm not necessarily in a position to protect you if what I uncover is evidence of criminal activity on your part, or even criminal intent. Do you understand that? Oh, God. What have I done? Just answer my question, please. I understand. He sank his head into his gloved hands. Okay, the second thing is that I'm no more interested in playing victim than I am accomplice or accessory. In the latter regard, I might find a way to turn a blind eye to things. But if you fuck with me, I'll take you down. And fast, got that? The sudden rough language was a calculated effect, and Harriet saw it work. Hornbaum gaped at her, slack-jawed. Please, tell me what I've done. Please finish answering my questions. What were you doing at the museum today? The museum? I've no idea. I've no memory of today. That's the problem. You must believe me, please. Harriet made a face, stalling. Finally, she said, Go ahead and write me a check. Make it for two more days. Yes, of course. He scribbled it out, staining his glove with ink and tore it from the book. As he handed it to her, he spoke in a near whisper. Will you tell me, please, what you know of my activities? You've been visiting the museum, and something's definitely wrong with your studio. That's my report for today. Go home, Mr. Hornbaum. I'll call you when my work is complete. Please. I don't want to interfere until the pattern has become clear, she said. And as she said it, Eloard's warning from her dream echoed in her head. Important not to disrupt another, more important investigation. Hornbaum nodded in a deflated way and went to the door. When he was gone, DeBronc came out of the closet and sat in the seat across the desk from Harriet. He doesn't remember. Or it's a superb act. Maybe you better fill me in on this now. She did, from the beginning, without skipping anything but the idiotic dream. Well, he said when she'd finished. It's obvious what you need. What? Same thing I need. A partner. If he's playing some game, he's counting on your being alone. There's two of us. One following him, the other staking out the studio. Well, slow down. didn't finish losing the argument until they were outside the darkened rear entrance to the museum. She gave up when he began fumbling at the door with his stolen keys. She pushed his hand away and whispered, Wait! I told you, I'm going in with or without you. Whatever, but you can't just break in like that. Jeez, here, you need this. He stared at the device she pulled out of her bag. What's that? Well, the main security system's probably motion detectors. On all the floors, and maybe in the displays, too. This thing averages out the kind of motion disturbance that triggers alarms. Like a steady cam, So it'll cloak us from that kind of system. Wow. Of course, if they've got something else, we're dead meat. Oh. They crept inside. No alarms sounded. The halls were half-lit. Eerily so. Empty, the lobby was oppressively large. And crossing it, Harriet felt exposed like a cat in a cathedral. They stopped at the frozen escalator and listened. Surely there were overnight guards. 
just as surely in Harriet's experience, those guards were sequestered in some room like the one she'd been taken to earlier that day, and surrounded with some combination of booze, cigarettes, radio cards, or pornographic magazines, if not all of the above. Hearing nothing, they tiptoed up the inert steps, two floors, to anxious furniture. In the gloom of the emptied museum, Harriet was suddenly aware of the strange, vibratory power of the pieces in the exhibition. Ogled by throngs, the objects had been reduced to monkeys in cages. Now, they were somehow predatory, feeding on the darkness and silence, and leaking it back out in purified form. Debronck unlocked the case containing his and Hornbaum's mysterious favorite. He plucked bird camera off its perch and eased it through the narrow opening in the back of the case, then wrapped it up in his coat, making a bulky, obvious bundle. Richard looked at the empty spot in the case between the metronome and the teacup, guiltily. Then, suddenly inspired, he handed bird camera to Harriet. He snuck into the hall and came back with a small red fire extinguisher. Cigarette, he whispered. She gave him one. He stuck it into the nozzle at the top of the fire extinguisher, to which it imparted a jaunty continental air, and put the new object in the case in place of the missing Ernst. On the second floor, they froze, hearing noises from the lobby. Someone on patrol. They waited until the sounds trickled away, then slipped back through the lobby and out, unharassed, booty intact. They ferried it in a cab back to her office. DeBronk unwrapped it on her desk and then sank into her chair, hollow-eyed. What? said Harriet. We stole it. I can't believe it. Yeah, we stole it. One of the major pieces in Ernst's career. This is like the most fatal thing I could possibly do in my profession. I can't believe it's sitting here. We took it out of the museum. What, are you going to fall apart on me now? You had to. You said you had to, Christ. It's just... Here. She opened her bottom drawer and handed him a bottle of whiskey. Wow. He said dreamily. What now? You really keep whiskey in your desk. Like a private eye. She rolled her eyes. He shook his head. You're just so cool. He took a slug from the bottle. Okay. Paper. Paper. I need paper. She opened her upper drawer and pulled out a few sheets of her stationery. Scissors. Need to cut it down a little. She supplied scissors. He took another bolt from the whiskey bottle and set to slimming the paper. He checked it against the width of the bird camera, then cut off another sliver. Okay, here goes. He said, manipulating the knobs tucked under the cannon at the end of the sculpture. You know how it works? Harriet was the nervous one now. What if they destroyed it? I memorized the notebook pages where he designed this thing, said DeBronk. They were all I had until now. His tongue stuck out of one side of his mouth as he eased the fitted paper into the maw of the press, then flicked the knob underneath the right-hand wheel. There was a flash at the mouth of the cannon, as though it had fired. A lick, a grinding of gears, and the paper was drawn into the heart of the machine. A pause. Then the paper rolled smoothly out the other end, like a Polaroid film. DeBronk hurried around the desk and caught it as it fell. The engraving was in the style of a 19th-century woodcut illustration, but it showed the corner of Harriet's office. Harriet was just at the edge of the frame, her shoulder at the bottom of the left corner, the side of her head and ear visible along the ledge. 
hovering in the space of the room and filling the center of the engraving, were the two birds from Harriet's dream, Breton and Eluard. Eluard was smoking a pipe, and Breton was holding a bright metallic-looking sphere which intersected the lobe of Harriet's ear like a hoop earring. It's incredible, said de Bronck. It's an original Ernst. An original posthumous Ernst. Harriet stared. It's a photograph, she said. That's me. Not a photograph exactly. A maxograph. From Max Ernst. He's like another Leonardo. God, this is so great. Harriet couldn't find voice to express her apprehension about what the maxograph revealed. DeBronck began excitedly cutting more paper to size and loading it into the tray at the back of the device. Do one of me. He aimed the cannon at himself. Push the button. She turned the knob, and bird camera snapped another shot. DeBronck, with the head of a crocodile, wearing a top hat, and holding a figurine of a naked Aphrodite. In the air over his head flew a small black sparrow. It's like a surrealist party toy, said DeBronck. The conceit is that it uncovers psychical reality, takes a picture of the subconscious world. He must have programmed the etching blades with thousands of images, and it combines them to match what the camera lens is aimed at. It's brilliant. Let's... let's take a maxograph of someone else. Okay, outside. He scooped up bird camera, and they went out onto the street. Holding it at chest level, he aimed it at a young couple walking on the other side of the street. A giant rooster walking an ape on a leash, in a hail of disembodied breasts. The buildings behind showed a variety of nightmarish dramas half-hidden behind the window curtains. Wow, he's even got a program so Lop Lop is in each picture, said DeBronk. What's Lop Lop? Not what, who. Lop Lop was a bird character, sort of Ernst's imaginary alter ego. He put Lop Lop in a lot of the collages. Not all of those birds are named Lop Lop, Harriet wanted to say, but the words didn't come out. Harriet, I'm gonna be famous. It's okay that we broke in. Nobody will care. I'm happy for you. Well, what's the matter? Nothing, nothing. I just need a favor, okay? No questions. Sure. We have to take a picture, a maxograph... Of Hornbaum, right away. He smiled and shrugged. Sure, sounds hilarious. Let's go. She bit her lip. They walked to Barrow Street. Hornbaum's studio lights were on. Harriet stopped a bronc at the stoop across the street. His house first. The famous Hornbrum residence, exposed by the all-seeing bird camera. He announced and turned the knob. Flash. Water poured out of the windows of the upper floors to meet the flames licking out of the windows to the basement studio, producing clouds of steam that drifted off and mingled with the clouds of the night sky. The moon above was being mothered like an egg by an enormous vulture. Harriet shuddered, then caught herself. She had to know. I... I want to catch him painting, she said. With that thing. You can include the maxograph with your report as evidence. DeBronck suggested merrily. They slipped across the street and through his gate and went to the ground-level window of the basement studio. Harriet peered over the top. There he was, back turned, shoulders draped in a spattered smock. She pointed. DeBronck aimed bird camera. 
Something, some noise or disturbance in the air altered him. As the cannon flashed, he turned and saw them. Run! Harriet whispered, and in the grip of some unnatural fear, turned and fled herself. DeBronck caught up with her as she unlocked the door to her office. Look, he said, holding up the maxograph. It was Hornbaum with the maniacal bird's head she'd hallucinated the night before. The painting he was working on was of Harriet, herself, her huge eyes flooding with tears. Before she could utter a word, the phone in her office rang, suddenly sure it was Hornbaum. She pulled the door shut again, not even wanting to hear him record a message, not even wanting to enter a room he'd so recently inhabited. Upstairs, she said, half gasping. DeBronck followed her into her apartment, and while she carefully locked the door, he put bird camera on her counter and spread the nightmarish maxographs out on the kitchen table. No, she said when she turned and saw them. She scooped them up and put them in a drawer with a pile of folded tablecloths. What's the matter? Nothing, I just don't want to look at them. At night. You're acting strange. Yes, I know. She launched herself toward him, to shut him up. And for other reasons. Kill two birds, she caught herself thinking. The kiss started badly, their teeth clacking together, but lasted long enough that they put the mistakes behind them. Wow. He said. You should get rid of that stupid little beard, she said. It makes you look like a boy with a beard. But if I shave it off, then I'll just look like a boy. No, if you shave it off, you'll look like a young, um, guy. Fellow, you mean. Young man, young guy, dude, something. Not a boy with a beard. They kissed some more. I thought you were going to complain about the scratchiness. He said. No, I like that. But it looks stupid. They went into her room and lay on the bed together. Suddenly he sat up. Just one more, Max Graff. He said. I have to do the television. Harriet sighed. Please? He kissed her, then pulled away and got bird camera out of the kitchen. Something Ernst couldn't have imagined. Something that didn't exist. He switched her television on. Star Trek. That should do it, she said. He got back on the bed beside her and aimed the cannon eye. Flash. Kirk and Spock in each other's arms. Bones glowering in the background. The tricorder in Spock's hand had been changed into a small gray dove, which he held to the captain's breast. Spock? Kirk? I never knew, said DeBronk. Seems like a hint, said Harriet. You know, birds do it, bees do it, even Kirk and Spock do it. Mph. He kissed her, putting bird camera and the new maxograph on her bedside table. Then, for a long while, only the sound of their breathing and the babble of the television... I wonder, he whispered, if someone took a maxograph of us now. Their clothes were all on the floor. Probably you'd turn out to be Hornbaum, she said, so let's skip it. Oh. Finally, they were still as well as quiet. They lay together on the pillows as the television blared. Now, for the first time offered to the general public, never before available, a unique six-CD package of goof hits of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's right, all these hits. As the voice listed songs, a snippet of each played underneath. Flying Purple Eater. The Streak. Convoy. Rainy Day Woman Number 12. And 35. Surfin' Bird. At that moment... A flock of birds rushed through the television screen into the room. They landed on the floor, 
and grew into a scowling, feather-suited jury. Eluard and Breton at the fore. Doesn't she know about the bird? said one. I thought by now everyone had been informed regarding the bird. She should know about the bird, said Eluard. We told her that the bird was the word. Yes, in the beginning was the bird, said another. We must exact our punishment, said Breton. Tada, uru, mahau, mahau, said a bird in the rear. Harriet found again that she couldn't move or speak. She and de Bronck were trapped, naked and immobile in the bed. Perhaps we should make our objections more clear, said Eluard. Perhaps we should rend flesh from bone, said Breton. Please, Aragon, will you silence Breton? Zara, where is Zara? Uh, Tristan, please, if you will, elucidate for this Adam and Eve the gravity and direness of the situation. A bird with spectacles stepped up to the bed. You must understand that we are only the sons of the bird. The true bird is everywhere, and he is far more powerful, more dangerous than we handful of sons. So, for so many years, the bird who is everywhere ruled unopposed, and his was a cruel reign, spasmodic in its violence, brutal in its indifference. Then we sons were born, out of the ashes of the crudest, bloodiest birth spasms the bird had ever known. There had been sons before, but scattered, isolated, helpless to sound the alarm. We were the first sons to band as we did, though indeed we too were helpless in the face of the ravages of the bird, the ravages that were to come. Among us sons was one known as Laplop, bird superior. He, more than any other, could glimpse the bird who is everywhere. His unerring finger found the bird out, warned of its claws. Laplop must live again, said Breton. You must resist interfering any further, concluded Zara somberly. How can they be trusted? You see, they have his camera. How can them find it here? It is true, said the one called Aragon. It is not enough now that they desist. Damage is done. Take her hostage! But this could be called advantageous, said Eluard. Bunglers they may be, but they freed his instrument from its doom. They returned it to use, which Hornburn himself could not do. It must be delivered, said Aragon. Take the man, leave her with the camera. When it is delivered, she shall have him back. Then we have our lollipop. Eve shall have her Adam. Revenge! Excommunication! shrieked Breton. No, said Zara. It is enough that we take him. Away, now. The birds rose, flapping into the air of Harriet's bedroom as they swirled through the air in a vortex towards the television. De Bronck rose up from the bed and shrank until he circled away with them into the drain of the screen. The cyclone of birds left not a single feather. Harriet 
fell asleep. Harriet didn't want to think about what had gone so wrong that DeBronc left without bird camera, or, from the look of things, most of his clothes. The utter jerk. She stumbled out of her bedroom and into the kitchen. She opened the tablecloth drawer and stared at the stack of maxographs. In the light of day, the images were unconvincing, and she couldn't imagine what had scared her so much the night before. They were clever. The device that had produced them was clever, certainly. But it was clever nonsense and she was tired of it. Art. She was swearing off art now, generally, and swearing off clever, nonsensical art historians in particular. She made coffee and considered her situation. The sculpture in her bedroom was stolen property, important stolen property. She would have to get it back. And her client was bullshit. She needed to drop him. She suddenly wondered if Richard de Bronck was Hornbaum's colleague. It would explain a lot. DeBronck had suggested it would take two to uncover Hornbaum's hijinks. But wasn't it equally true that it would take two to produce them? The only thing that kept her from returning the uncashed check in her wallet was, well, the uncashed check in her wallet. Her account cried for it. She'd contracted to trail him for a third day and deliver a report. And if she did so, she could rightfully keep the money. One more day of surveillance wouldn't hurt. It might even clear up a few things. For Harriet, shadowing was therapeutic. It placed her in her deepest, truest self, her pleasure in stealth, her core of ancient curiosities. She picked up Hornbaum at his door and followed him to a cafe for coffee and a newspaper. She found her own copy of the paper while he was engrossed in his. No mention of the missing bird camera. He caught a cab heading uptown, and she did the same, thinking, rerun. Sure enough, Hornbaum's cab pulled up at the museum. Harriet told her cabbie to stop. Suddenly, it hit her. If they were working together, Hornbaum wouldn't bother to come back up here. Bird camera isn't here. A chink opened in her skepticism, and through it, she glimpsed a horror film sequence of images from the night before. Uh, 68th Street in Lexington, she told the cabbie. What? I changed my mind. The cabbie shrugged, turned the wheel, and honked his way back into the flow of traffic. She paid her fare and ran into the bustling lobby of the main building at Hunter College, working her way through the mobs of students to the information desk. Graduate offices of the art history department, she said. 409... She went upstairs in the elevator and in room 409 found the secretary for the department. I'm looking for Richard DeBronc, she said. You'll have to wait in line. What do you mean? Well, dear, he wouldn't ordinarily be around here. He's writing his dissertation. Doesn't require that he appear at the department much. But he is teaching an undergraduate class across the street and they've called twice this morning looking for him. He didn't show up? If he did, they didn't let me know about it. Last I knew, the class was waiting for him. What's the room number? Harriet went downstairs and out and into the annex across the street. 
she found his classroom just as the last of the students were giving up waiting. De Bronck didn't show up? She asked. Nope. He's a flaky type, right? Does this often? What the hell are you from the administration? He's never missed a class before. Harriet's heart sank. De Bronck was a real person with real responsibilities and connections in the world, not just some capricious con man. Where was he? She went outside and caught a cab home. At her office door, she paused, looked inside quickly to see if there were any phone messages. No. She rushed up to her bedroom, switched on the television, and began flipping channels. On Channel 9, a Partridge Family rerun was just starting. The opening sequence, a series of animated partridges hatching from eggs. But instead of the Partridge Family, the newborn birds turned into the cabal from Harriet's dream. Eluard, Breton, Zara, Aragon, and several others. They smiled and waved as one by one they were introduced. At the end of the sequence came the one continuing character who wasn't a partridge, who wasn't hatched. The talented family's beleaguered, whining manager, played in today's episode by Richard de Bronck. To add to the manager's usual humiliations at the hands of the partridge children, de Bronck was naked. As the show opened, the monstrous birdmen were at their instruments, bobbing together as they played, Breton singing lead, a scabrous, surfing bird in a thick French accent. De Bronck scurried around the perimeter, wringing his hands, his penis flapping, insisting hopelessly that they practice some other song. Horrified, Harriet snapped the television off. She sat stunned for a minute as the impossible truth sank in. Then she grabbed bird camera, stuffed it into a shopping bag in the kitchen, and ran downstairs and out. At Barrow Street, Hornbaum was already back in his studio, wearing his spattered smock. She crossed the street and knocked on his window. He went on painting, his back to her. She let herself in with the key. As she stepped into the studio, there was a rush from the canvases lining the walls, and she was surrounded by a posse of sad-eyed children, looming top-heavy homeless person clowns, and puppy watchdogs with enormous weepy eyes. They massed all around her, hemming her in, backing her toward the door. The puppies growled gently. The children murmured to themselves. Is a nice lady a bird too? Where's my daddy? I just want to play house, but there's nothing but bullies on my block. And the clowns chanted in sing-song voices. Gotta cheer up the birds. They're not nasty birds. They're just grumpy. Can't let them get you down. Oh, yeah. But who's the lady with the package? Don't want no birds in here. Gotta make Mr. Hornbaum happy. He's the boss. Oh-ho. Their gabbling rising to a roar, the clowns and puppies and children floated up to loom over Harriet, threatening to smother her with their marshmallow-soft bodies. She struck out at one, and it burst like a balloon, spattering gobs of oil paint all over her arm. Hornbaum! Harriet shouted over the din. He went on frantically painting, tossing off new children and puppies and clowns who insistently rose from the canvas to join the barrage. Hornbaum, I have your report! I don't need a report, he said without turning. My situation is all too clear. What situation? She swatted the forms away from her mouth and eyes. I went to the museum. He turned and looked at her accusingly. Someone had stolen the bird detector I'd been coveting. The shock of it opened my eyes. 
I got it for you, right here. No, no, my dear. I can see the birds all by myself now. I don't need it. I've been thrown back on my own resources. I understand now. The birds are everywhere. It's just me and my children. That's all I can count on. He smiled maliciously. For instance, you, my dear, I see that you are a bird, like all the others. How frightening that a few short days ago I was so blind as to walk into your nest and ask you for help, as though you could help me. He dashed off a pair of enormous, weepy, disembodied eyes, which were so impatient to join the throng that they floated off the canvas by themselves before their maker could surround them with the clown. Harriet pushed the forms away from her, but as they met the resistance of others pressing behind them, they began to melt together like soap bubbles and form the beginnings of one huge clown whose oil paint hide was much thicker than that of his miniature brethren. You're as much a bird as me, said Harriet. She began backing toward the door, overwhelmed and wary of the gigantic clown in the making. It's no good trying to fool me now, screamed Hornbaum. The children and puppies and clowns began flowing directly off his brush and pouring toward her. I see the birds. I see you. They're everywhere. It's only me. I'm all alone. Only me and my children to save me. I see the birds. There's one bird you haven't spotted, said Harriet. She elbowed the puppies away from the shopping bag and drew out bird camera. One sheet of her stationery, cut to size by de Bronck, was left in the tray. She jostled the clowns between her and Hornbaum, trying to clear an unobstructed view. The giant clown lay sprawled at her feet, embryonic, yet already struggling to its feet. Flash. The collage that emerged showed Hornbaum with a beak. Good enough. Harriet charged into the mass of clowns and children and puppies and held the paper out to Hornbaum. Take it! Look! Her body dripped with oil paint. The giant clown seized her legs. Hornbaum snatched the paper away from her. He dropped his brush. The clowns and puppies and children all held where they stood, yipping and sniffling and chortling in melancholy voices. Hornbaum seemed to fade, his certainty gone. The paper he held grew larger, extended easel legs to the floor, wooden ruler arms outward, and a long easel neck upward. The neck was topped with a small round bird's head with a comb like a rooster's. Finally, said the easel bird. It shook itself with a clatter, then stepped over and kicked the giant clown away from Harriet's legs. How do you do? My name is Lop-Lop. Harriet Welsh, said Harriet. Very good choice, mademoiselle, to turn the camera on my poor son. Thank you. The voice that issued from the little red bird's head atop the easel body was soft and mannered, with a slight German accent. Hornbaum stood, looking dumbfounded. Yes, Jonathan, you are my son. I am your father, though you never knew me. This is a wrong that must be righted, a bird that must be captured on canvas, so to speak. My father died in Germany, said Hornbaum softly. No, your adoptive father died there. Your true father, Max Ernst, left your mother never knowing she was pregnant with you. He, I, moved often and quickly in that regard. Regrettable, perhaps. 
Max lived many years in France and America, never knowing he had this son. But I, Lop-Lop, came to know of your existence, your emigration to America, your, uh, career. Ernst or Lop-Lop, which are you? asked Harriet. Ah, Ernst was Lop-Lop, his secret identity, his bird self, both horrible and wise. But when Ernst died, I, Lop-Lop, lived on. Why didn't you come forward sooner? This is a rare freedom I enjoy now. When it is over, I shall go back to the margins, trapped in museum depictions, flourishing occasionally in the seams between things, like the other sons, but unable to speak aloud. I did what I could. I tried to direct his hand. The altered paintings, said Harriet. Yes, I added a glimpse of the bird to his soporific canvases. But the birds, whispered Hornbaum, the terrible birds. Yes, we are all terrible birds said Lop-Lop. I was the bird, when I treated your mother so badly, during that terrible time when all of Germany seemed endlessly birds. But I painted what I saw. You have spent your life running from the bird, and so the bird is never named, never mastered. Lop-Lop turned to Harriet. My son had a powerful surrealist magic in him. Despite his never knowing his heritage, it knew itself in him. But he put it to very poor use. Jonathan is a reverse Icarus. His father equipped him with wings, but rather than fly too near the sun, he never left the ground. He scowled at the puppies and clowns and children, who were now beginning to scurry and melt back into the canvases that lined the walls of the studio. Lop-Lop took bird camera out of Harriet's hands. <laughs> My little toy. Jonathan won't need it now. He must return it to its place in the museum. He stilted over and put it into the shopping bag, then looked at a watch on his wooden wrist. Hurry home now. You have to free your friend from the television. Sesame Street will be over in a few minutes. What about the sons of the bird? asked Harriet. I'll see to that. Breton is a scoutmaster at heart, always checking and revoking memberships, slapping wrists and handing out medals. You mustn't take it too seriously. He looked back at Hornbaum, who stood hapless in the midst of his canvases, his eyes nearly as large as those he ceaselessly depicted. Please leave us, said Lop-Lop. I have many apologies to make as a father. He paused, scowling. And my son has equally many to make as a painter. Their house is not exactly in the city, but the city can be seen from the nearby promenade. It's a part of Brooklyn Heights where it's possible to live in brownstones very much as lovely as Hornbaum's without living anywhere near Hornbaum himself. Her success as an expert in museum and auction security, due in large part to her celebrated rescue of Max Ernst's bird camera, permits her to run the agency at a remove. He still teaches, but not because he has to. There is not a single television in the entire house.
everybody's heard about the bird. Jonathan Lethem is the author of Dissident Gardens and eight other novels. His fiction and essays have been translated into over 30 languages. He lives in Los Angeles and Maine. The insipid profession of Jonathan Hornbaum is narrated by Tatiana Gomberg, a New York City-based actress and audiobook narrator. She has performed off and off-off Broadway, as well as regionally and internationally. Her work in The Night of Nosferatu garnered her an NYIT Award nomination for Best Featured Actress, and her portrayal of a drone pilot in Hummingbirds earned her a Best Actress nomination through the Planet Connections Awards. She also played the leads in two seasons of classics at Theater 1010 and toured the United States with Theater Works USA. You can hear her narration work on audible.com and numerous podcasts, www.tatianagomberg.com. Matteo Pendergrast, the voice of Jonathan Hornbaum, born 2047, birthplace New York, New York, height 6 foot 5, weight 200 pounds, likes slash hobbies, reading, bikes, going for walks, swimming, friendship, family time, Eugene O'Neill, canoe, PS2, including more than 100 games. Michael Taylor, the voice of Richard DeBronck, is undeniably the greatest man in the world. He enjoys games, puzzles, and experiencing interactive theater to improve on the subtle, intricate, yet uniquely brilliant greatness of Michael Taylor's mind. C.C. James is the founder of Singularity & Co., an independent bookstore and publishing house in Brooklyn, New York, dedicated to bringing vintage science fiction and other genre pulp back to the future. C.C. James is also an anthropologist of fan culture, as well as an avid cosplayer and notable New York City nightlife personality. Find C.C. James on Twitter at at C.C. James and at Singularity Co. Wilson Fowler, the voice of Lop Lop, has been getting more and more into voice work ever since 2008 when he narrated his first story for Podcastle. If you're in the Vancouver, Canada area, or even if you just love a good fun show chorus, check out the Maple Leaf Singers, the group Wilson directs. You can find them at their own website, www.mapleleafsingers.com, or their Facebook page, facebook.com slash Singers. Josiah Woodson is a composer and Grammy Award-winning musician who has worked with the Oakland East Bay Symphony, the Maconda Project, and the Superpower Horns, as well as artists such as Branford Marcellus, Clarence Clemens, Mos Def, and Beyonce Knowles. Woodson holds a Bachelor's in Music from the Oberlin Conservatory and a Master's in Music from the New England Conservatory of Music, and is annoyed when people confuse impulse power with sublight drive. He lives in Paris, France. So, let me get this straight. Spelling Bound's dead? That's right. And Don Fairweather Jenkins tried to get rid of you too? Yes. And you escaped through the story and showed up on my doorstep? Exactly. Well, you know what this means, don't you? I... what? You led her right here, you moron! James, wait! Now, now, get out! Right now! Every minute you stay here, she's closer to getting me and I refuse to get choked on again! Oh, Mr. Sackman. Ah! See for yourself, that ship has sailed. How did you get in here? I should have thought that was obvious. I teleported. Oh no, that would mean... That's right, Overstreet. A privilege reserved for senior crypto administrators. While you fools were busy scheming... I wasn't scheming! I found the source for the stories drifting in and out of our reality. I mean, when would I even have Say time to Say goodbye to assistant crypto provost oh, Don Fairweather Jenkins. Uh, goodbye?
She's been promoted, you fool. She's won. Oh, so that means she can mess with you, like, directly. So very, very directly. Yeah, I'm not seeing a downside here on my end. And that's why I've decided not to kill you, Overpass. Oh, this is the worst day of my life. Now, now, I'm sure the worst days of your life are still ahead of you. Shall we say next season? So, you guys are still in my house. Oh, yeah. oh, oh well, you sorry. Know, I was, you know, I, sorry. I, I, you know, it's getting late. I, I, you know. I got a dinner to go oh, to. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I guess I should it. probably. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Finally. Well, where was I? Oh, yeah. That's right. A strawberry daiquiri. James! Oh, Christ! James, you are never going to believe No, what I... no, sorry, no. But, but, but James, ow! Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineers are Atticus Ryan Garten, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mazzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland McLean as Dawn Fairweather Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors. Ready as will be. Okay, so this is the final interview, the final outro for uh, the Kaleidocast. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> Dramatic hamster. We survived. Dun, dun, dun! So who <laughs> survived? So uh, this is my Cameron Roberson. Also, I am, uh, gosh, what's my name? I really, I always forget James my name. James Earl King II. Second. Second, That's eight, his name! Third, fourteenth, Second, something. second. That's what second, it is. Second, second yes. Yeah. Uh, Bradley Robert Parks, I'm Brad Overstreet, Avenue, uh, Lane something. And uh, I'm Sam Schreiber, the uh, late, less late uh, Sam Spellingbound. I'm not sure where we landed there. (laughs) Stay tuned. You will see him in season two. Uh, But yeah, so we're the producers along with uh, Tanya Ireland McLean, who is not here with us today, but uh, she definitely was a huge part of what we you know, what we put together. Exactly. So, uh, we uh, got the idea for this podcast in bits and pieces, but I think uh, about two years ago was when things really started to uh, to get uh, on a roll. More, actually. I have dug up yeah. emails from 2013, Oh, my people. goodness. So, you know, the best way to make a podcast is to not learn anything about making a podcast from anyone who's ever done it right before mm-hmm. and try to do it all yourself 
and therefore take two and a half years to do it. Yeah, but then you, but, that's but then the you get, best then way. Then you get to it really is. keep all the credit for yourself. I did this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We didn't learn from anyone. No, not the really. No, best not, practices not be damned. Not at all. Mm. Until after the fact. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, eventually, yeah. eventually we kind of had to. So. Yes. Now we know everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I mean, it was just—it's just great because you know, Brooklyn speculative fiction writers. There are a lot of amazing writers, and they definitely deserve, you know, to be heard and have their stories read and to make it to the top of the slush pile. And we know that there are pros out there who also need to make some money. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which uh, which we we do give them. We we, we don't give them much money, but uh, there is some money involved. Yeah, so. but uh, you yes. guys can help us out yeah. with that a little. Uh, Brad will talk about that a little bit later. I exactly. Think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, as far as like who do we actually really have to thank here, definitely. And I just want to start with Chris Dykeman. If you go to our website, uh, you see like the banner that we have. If you go on iTunes, the, our banner, our icon on, on iTunes, she did that for us, and it's phenomenal. We also a very big thanks to Atticus Ryan Garten. He was our uh, original sound engineer for a great deal of what we did. Yeah, exactly. how long, when did we start? He stuck with us yeah. as long as he could yeah. <laughs> from 2013. But from a from a Facebook call for audio engineers, mm-hmm. he stuck with us for two years of indecision and stops and starts, and he is an absolute professional. His work is is sterling. Yeah. Also, Alicia Barrett came in also after Atticus, and she has a very fine tuned ear that I think comes, which is really you know testament to her prof- professionalism. Right now, she's working at Do Art Film and Video, and she's also a singer and songwriter. So find her on uh, SoundCloud as well. We did another open call for sound engineers, and Matt Mezzarella stepped up, and he really helped us out when we were in a tight spot, and we just needed someone of quality to do, to, to pick up the slack. And actually, you listen to our intro, you know, it was Atticus who really put it together, but then Matt added an extra something to it that mainly made it kind of come together. Matt Stewart also stepped in to help us out when we needed help. He did episodes five and six. He's a co-worker of mine. And a uh, budding electronic music producer, so keep an eye out for his bio on the website, and uh, if he has anything to link to, we'll make sure that we link to it there. Yeah, everyone here will be linked to on the website. Which brings us to Terrence Taylor. Oh, we are not worthy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Terrence's stories have appeared in all three of the Dark Dreams anthologies. And Uh, he has his own uh, Vampire Testaments trilogy that he's working on. Two of them are already out, the third one he's working on. So, yeah, he's a scriptwriter, producer, editor, and a motion graphics designer. And we found out a surprising little factoid recently about him. A little, little trivia about Mr. Taylor. He's the uh, designer of the logo for the television program The Big Bang Theory. So that I doubt you've like, heard of it yeah, because it's very yeah. obscure. Yeah, 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 it hasn't seen much uh, popularity. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, if it comes up as a Jeopardy question, you know. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Will Wheaton was on that show once. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know so. him either. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we uh, we discussed Tanya, but another person we really need to give a big shout-out to is Marcy Arlen. Oh, she's an amazing director and has helped us out, uh, you know, kind of teaching us how to be better performers, better readers of our own work. Better and, people, you know. Uh, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely that, but she's certainly... A moral compass for the heat of the <laughs> <laughs> She's certainly helped make this a more professional-sounding 
production. Mm-hmm. And also Jim Frond, who amplified, amplified our sound. Yeah, he amplified our sound, letting yeah. us come on to the Hour of the Wolf and mm-hmm. amplified our sound until we had a little bit of feedback going on. <laughs> <laughs> As if we couldn't do that ourselves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Taught us what we could and couldn't say on the radio. Yeah, and then uh, there is also uh, my wife, uh, Kim Schreiber, who goes by Kim Rogers professionally still. Uh, you can hear her on all the episodes uh, doing our lovely little boilerplate intro as well as uh, reading Cassie Alexander's story Mercury from episode one. Mm-hmm. You can also hear her on Podcastle uh, back on the uh, it's not Women Destroy Fantasy it's Artemis Rising which is the audio version oh, of Women so Destroy good. Fantasy. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a great story. Uh, she does a lovely Irish accent. <laughs> does she not? <laughs> was it Popeye? No, that's, I don't think he was Irish. No, no, he's a sailor man. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that an accent? Is like, like, it's like, from like, I'm from sailor. <laughs> I'm from the sea. This be Michelle. Arr. Yar. Anyway. I, I was going to go work in Hollywood and be Popeye, but I had to lose my sailor accent. Yar. <laughs> so now I sound like this. <laughs> Past the Great Poupon. Uh, so for next season, we've, we've already gotten started. Um, we have a couple, at least three different stories we're definitely going to have, or rather authors, uh, mm-hmm. definitely going to be um, featured, featuring yeah. uh, Evan Burkow, who's an amazing author from our group. Is now he's kind of he's kind of hitting it right now with Stride. He's been published thing twice in the last year. Uh, Strange yeah. Horizons, and also his he had a story that was originally slated for Cast of Wonders, but wound up on a skate pod. Nice. Yeah. And if you don't know his name already, also there's David Rivera. Mercu- yeah. David Mercurio Rivera. And, and we'll have one of our own, another of our own, S. Chakra Borti coming back with another mm-hmm. fine tale for you. Yep. Uh, she's the author of Bilotti, uh, still my favorite uh, story of, of this season. Not that we play favorites at all. <laughs> no, no. no. So also, um, we're hoping that you would uh, enjoy all of the episodes that we've put out so far and look forward to season two, and that because (coughs) of these things, that you will support us on a lovely little site called Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Go there, look up the Kaleidocast, and there you can support us. Patreon is a wonderful website that is put together solely for the purpose of supporting artistic endeavors, regardless of what they are. Comic book creators are on there. Musicians, authors, anybody creating anything. You can go on there. You can toss us a dollar a month if you want. You can make a one-time donation. You can make, you know, $50 $50 a month if it's in if your you, heart If you to have do it so. in you, you exactly. just want to you know, open um, your pockets and then rain gold upon us like Scrooge McDuck. It would very... Uh, we would greatly appreciate yeah. it. And all, um, the, and all the money goes to the, the artists and to the writers. and to, Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As part of season two, we would love to be able to toss a little cheddar to our sound engineers, to our readers, to our writers. So all of that money doesn't stay with us. It goes out into the artistic world and makes the Kaleidocast even better in season two than it was in season one. Yeah, we stay poor, but the stories get better. <laughs> Precisely. So we're really hoping that you enjoyed the Kaleidocast. We've put years of time and buckets of sweat and uh, a lot of laughs and fun and, and excitement and energy into it. So please, please stay with us and we'll see you back for season two. 
Now, th this might get cut from uh, from the production if, if we don't wind up getting further along with it, but just in case we don't. Uh, so we are producing an audio drama called All the President's Monsters, which is by Mark Stauffenberg, and uh, some friends of the Kaladocast are going to be playing featured roles in it. Uh, we're hoping to see a late summer release date on that. It's sort of a little treat for you guys in between seasons, and... Uh, uh, we're excited about it. Yeah, so yeah. stick around, uh, look at our, our website, The Kaleidocast, and also on our other website, Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. If you're a writer yourself, you want to get involved, please, if you're in the metro area, uh, Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, uh, Staten Island, okay, sure, why not? New Jersey. Uh, then uh, if you can make the trip, then come on down. We'd love to have you. Yes. Exactly. So, yeah, remember the, the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers brought this whole production to you. And uh, we'd love to have your participation. And keep an eye on the feed between seasons for not just the, the little nugget of surprise that Sam mentioned, but who knows? Whatever, whatever little bits and pieces we uh, whatever other get nuggets. it together to, to <laughs> toss your uh, way. There are various uh, nuggets shaped in the, you know, the, what was it, chicken head nugget from the chicken nuggets? Mm, I don't know delicious. What I, I know what those nuggets are made out of. I'll take barbecue sauce, please. Mm. All right, thank you, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.